Joan Hogan welcoming you to the Prairie Doc Radio Program. Rick Holm, our Prairie Doc, is unable to be with us today, so I'm happy to welcome Kelly Evans, an internal medicine physician with the Avira Medical Group Brookings. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning, Joan. Thanks for having me back. Well, I'm glad you're back, and I know you've been on the program a few times. It's been fun to have you here, and also... For uh, those of you who have not heard Kelly on the air before, she is a Brookings woman. She grew up right here in Brookings, uh, Brookings High School, and went on. Was your medical school USD? Yep. Okay. I graduated from SDSU, too, and then went to USD for medical school, and I've been back in town for about a year now. Well, it's great to have you here, and we're happy to have you in internal medicine. I know Dr. Holm is retired now, so to have more internal medicine physicians at the clinic is just great. Mm -hmm. Miss him, but um, time marches on, right? Yeah. Yeah, It just does. (laughs) Uh, Oftentimes, we'll we'll discuss whatever uh, the television program tomorrow night will have. As you know, Dr. Holm has... Prairie on call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Television at 7 o'clock Thursday nights. But South Dakota Public Television is having their fundraising going on right now. So there is no program tomorrow night. The fundraising uh, has some really good music on. I know that. <laughs> they, they tend to uh, really be successful with the music shows that they have on. So that has gone over. But because we don't have a Prairie Doc tomorrow night, we're just ready for your questions. If you give us a call at 692-1430, it'd be great to hear from any of you. Dr. Evans is uh, happy to answer any questions you might have. If we don't have the answers, we can cover them next week. But it's fun to hear from all of you. So if you give us a call, 692-1430, we'll uh, be glad to, a- to address those. We did have one call that came in last week we didn't get to, and I thought we could get to it this week. A woman called in and she said her 20-year-old daughter was badly sunburned last week. She said, I always made sure she wore sunscreen as a child, but now she's on her own. Do you think sunscreen is being ignored by young adults or is it just my daughter? What are your (laughs) thoughts on that, Kelly? I think it's not just your daughter. Uh, And I think, you know, 10, 15 years ago, most 20 or a lot of 20 year old daughters were hopping in the tanning bed so I don't know if that's quite as prevalent as it was a decade ago but certainly you know just like a 20 year old might be prone to speeding too fast down the highway they're probably prone to neglecting the sunscreen as well Um, I do think that some young people and maybe young women in particular think that going out for in the sun for an hour will just get them a nice little tan and not worry about the sunburn but we do know that any unprotected sun exposure it can be risky um, our population up here is often quite fair-skinned and more prone to sunburns than even the average population in the U.S. So um, remind that 20-year-old daughter about the importance of sunscreen and for protection from skin cancer and, you know, other cosmetic issues that can go along with aging related to the sun. Um, The important thing are that you use an SPF of at least 30. And then reapplication is the other thing. If if someone's out on the lake for a whole day, they probably should be reapplying that sunscreen every couple of hours. Um, And even better than sunscreen is actual a barrier protection. So wear a light long sleeve shirt, um, wear a hat, all that good stuff. Um, But, you know, 
I think young people feel immune to the dangers of the sun, like they feel immune to other dangers that you might not understand. So um, she's in the same boat as a lot of folks her age. So it's not just your daughter. No. You did the best you could for her. <laughs> and hopefully she'll get her head back on and start using sunscreen. Mm-hmm. You mentioned tanning beds when you were talking mm-hmm. there. There's, they're not as prevalent as they were, but they're still out there. Mm-hmm. Tanning beds, I know they exist in Brookings. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think I, I think most of us know the dangers of tanning beds. Uh, tanning beds essentially provide UV light, which is the, the type of light that comes from the sun that increases risk for skin cancer of, of many types, along with some other things. Um, I and I'm not around folks of sort of that that younger age group all that much that I know how popular they are now. I know when I was in high school and college, everybody was going to the tanning bed. And I think I think we've done a, a pretty good job of educating the public away from that. Um, but, you know, they're they I still see commercials and obviously those places are still making uh, money, but certainly no UV exposure is safe uh, per se. And um, every time there's a tan gotten there, there's also potential damage to the DNA in the skin cells. So, Okay. Well, on that note, we're going to take our first break. Uh, again, give us a call if you have any medical questions, 692-1430, and we'll be back right after these words. Hi, welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. I'm Joan Hogan, and Dr. Holmes unable to be with us today, so in the studio with me is Kelly Evans, who's an internal medicine physician with the Avera Medical Group Brookings. Uh, we were talking about sun earlier, and now we're t- uh, we had a question about colon cancer. Somebody was watching the news last night. Um, I caught a piece of this. I didn't see the whole program, but on the one of the 6 o'clock news, I think it was NBC, they remarked, and they did a little episode on... Um, that, that colon cancer is on the rise with people under 50. Normally, when you uh, talk about colon cancer, the common method for doctors is to suggest screening or colonoscopy after 50. In this uh, program was saying that there are more people under 50 that are being diagnosed with colon cancer. Have you been aware of this or know anything about it? You know, I'm, I missed that program and I don't, I haven't seen whatever the study was that the, the show was based on. So I can't really comment on that. Um, I will say, so basically all recommendations really across the board um, for colon cancer screening include colonoscopy, although there are some other uh, less invasive options, but in this neck of the woods, because we have good access to colonoscopy, that's the most commonly used test. And you're right, they all recommend at age starting at age 50, and if you have a normal colonoscopy, you get to go 10 years in between if you don't have any family history. Um, do people younger than 50 get colon cancer? Absolutely. Um, it happens. It's it's by far less common than over 50. And so whenever an institution gives a screening recommendation, that's based on a lot of things. And it's based on numbers. You know, when do the majority of people start getting colon cancer? Um, Because we don't want to, you know, there's there's by nature going to be an arbitrary cutoff with these recommendations. We're not going to give colonoscopies to everyone starting at age 20. Um, but it doesn't make sense to start at age 70. So based on rates, there's there's a cutoff made, and there's a lot of thought and science that goes into that. Um, 
I would say if theoretically over the next decade we saw rates in that 40 to 50 increase, again, I have not read the science, so this is all to be taken with a grain of salt. But sometimes these recommendations change. We saw that with mammography um, five or 10 years ago when a lot of recommendations changed from starting from age 40 to age 50. And there's still hot debate in that 40 to 50 age range with that screening test. But the the point is that these are subject to change as our knowledge and data changes. We do know that there are folks under age 50, there are certain people who are at higher risk for which it does certainly makes sense to start screening earlier. So if you have a first degree relative, and what that means is a parent or a brother or sister um, who had colon cancer, then you may need to start screening earlier. And our general recommendation is that folks start 10 years prior to the age of discovery in that first degree relative. So if your father had colon cancer diagnosed at age 55, you should start at age 45. Oh, that's and your insurance should, yes. Yeah, so, yeah. And so the other part of this is always insurance coverage. So because of our recommendation, generally speaking, if you don't have increased risk, insurance will not pay for a screening colonoscopy before age 50, except in these cases in which the recommendations say to start earlier. The other populations that should have this earlier are folks with known diseases. So there are some hereditary diseases that increase your risk for colon cancer, um, and those are pretty rare. The other one is ulcerative colitis, which is an autoimmune disease of the colon. That's something that uh, increases risk of colon cancer. And so those folks should start colon cancer screening earlier, and it's based on when you were diagnosed with the ulcerative colitis. And uh, your insurance would cover it because yes. of that. Yes, yes. So, so the recommendations for we, what we say is for average risk people, so people who are not in any of those groups, it starts at age 50, but then there are sort of these exceptions for higher risk individuals. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, sometimes those programs on the news will just... They're trying to fill time. So whether you said you didn't yeah, see it, it may not have been exactly. based on and, actual science. And there, you know, the the um, lay media is really good at sensationalizing health stories. Often, when it comes to data that are published in our medical journals, it's not very sensational. You know, we <laughs> we do science in really small increments, um, and so to make it exciting for a news story on the nightly news it's probably blown out of proportion to some degree i think that could be stated as a general rule about medical news so when you catch it on the (laughs) news don't get too excited you never know one other thing with before we drop that topic um the recommendation is to have a screening from 50 on but at some age, they recommend you don't need to bother be right. with screening. What would that age be? Well, most recommendations say about age 75 okay. um, is, is where recommendations end. And part of that is because we have not done the studies in people beyond that age. So when we did these trials for all of these cancer screening guidelines, not just colon cancer, most of them included people of a certain age and generally speaking 75 is always the oldest now in general to benefit from cancer screening um, especially for the for the cancers that we have screening tests for are by nature slower growing cancers which is part of why screening can work so by by nature, you need about 10 years more of life expectancy to potentially benefit from that screening test. And so the average age in the United States is, I think, somewhere around 84 now. Um, And so by definition, after age 75, it's kind of no man's land. Now, what I tell people is after age 75, I wouldn't just show up for your screening mammogram or whatever screening test. I would talk to your 
personal doctor about it because I think there's variability. There are some 75-year-olds who have no other medical illness, and so we have good reason to believe that they have a long lifespan in front of them. If you're 75 and have a lot of medical illness and are in and out of the hospital, then your potential benefit from a screening test is probably really low, and it only sets you up for the potential risks of it. So talk to your doctor after the age of recommendation. Okay, that surprises me. I would think if you were sickly that you'd have these tests, but instead, if you're really healthy, yeah. it might make sense to have them. I never thought of it like that because your, your expectancy right. to live longer exactly. is better. Exactly, yeah. so you need a certain amount of life expectancy to benefit from these screening tests. Okay. Um, and the other thing is if, if you're a more ill person, your potential risks of a colonoscopy are also going to be higher because there are always risks with these procedures. So you're better off not doing it for someone who isn't for, well. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> well, we need to take a break. Again, we appreciate any calls you want to give us and any questions you have of medicine give us a call at 692-1430 and we'll be back right after these words hey welcome back to prairie doc radio i'm joan hogan in the studio with me today in dr holmes absence is kelly evans who's an internal medicine physician with the avera medical group brookings Good to have you here, Kelly, and I appreciate the, I'm sure our audience too appreciates the answers you're giving. We had someone call in about Parkinson's, and I told Kelly, I don't know if it's because I'm older, I know more people with Parkinson's disease, and I've talked to more people who say, is this on the rise? It's mm-hmm. just hard to tell. Do you think it is? Or You is know, it- I, I don't know whether there's a true answer to that, and being a young prairie doc. I don't have a lot of years of experience to be able to state whether I've seen more of it or not. What I would say is that um, it's it's possible that incidence of diseases like Parkinson's would be increasing over the last few decades and over your lifespan because we're living longer. People are living longer. And that's so, the other thing. Yeah. 75 would be mm-hmm. pretty much maybe 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. You'd be thrilled to live to 75. Right. And now 75 for me, seems very young. Yeah, <laughs> <Just> <laughs> and I'm sure a number of people listening are feeling the same. So, yeah. so your life you know, expectancy is longer. Right, right. As life expectancy has increased and may continue to increase, though slowly, the all of these diseases that are associated with aging are likely to increase in number. So, Parkinson's disease being one of them. Certainly, Alzheimer's dementia is another one that we see. And I think as a society, it's a big question how we're going to deal with some of these diseases of aging as our numbers get higher? How are we going to take care of folks who need uh, extra care that families might not be able to provide, especially as the baby boomer generation um, gets older and older? Right, Mm -hmm. right. Well, have you seen any new treatments for Parkinson's disease or is it about Um, So it's a pretty highly researched disease. Our our standby First-line treatments are still some of the oldest medical treatments that we have. So um, carbidopa, levodopa is the generic name of the drug that we is the first line really for almost everyone with Parkinson's disease. It's something that you have to take multiple times a day, but it controls a lot of symptoms, the tremor, etc. One really important treatment that I think we continue to learn more about is physical therapy and exercise for folks with Parkinson's disease. Um, A lot of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease are what we call motor symptoms, meaning they get very rigid and stiff. Uh, Walking becomes more difficult. So 
therapies that allow them to stay independent and strong are important for uh, longevity and being able to stay in their homes longer. Um, there was actually a study that came out a few years ago that showed Tai Chi was excellent for Parkinson's disease. Now, that's um, not tea that you drink. No, no. no. <laughs> tai, what is tai Chi is a type of exercise. Yeah, right? it's a. I think it's an old Chinese form of exercise, and I my knowledge of it ends there. Though I know I've had some patients who have. Um, I think there was someone on on SDSU's campus who was offering some Tai Chi classes at least uh, last year. Um, and then there are some more um, invasive modes of of treatment, things like um, brain stimulators and things like that, which require actual insertion of a device. Um, those are reserved for really resistant cases of, of Parkinson's disease that don't respond to medications. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. another thing I'm familiar with and I've heard of is this, is it Lewy body syndrome? What is that? Lewy body dementia is another it, form of dementia. Does that mm -hmm. tie in with Parkinson's or not necessarily? Not necessarily. They're, okay. they're separate classifications of disease. Um, they they can affect, uh, they can have sort of similar characteristics in the brain, but Lewy body dementia is a type of dementia where the, the classic finding is that people actually have hallucinations. Um, they might see or hear things that aren't there, um, which is not classically true in the other types of dementia. Okay, mm -hmm. but it can tie, people with Parkinson's can get that as well. Uh, they they could, but ge generally Not speaking, commonly. they're separate diseases. Okay. Yes, Parkin folks with Parkinson's can get dementia, um, but it's not necessarily a Lewy body dementia. Okay. Mm -hmm. Lewy bodies are essentially something that are seen under the microscope is, is how those got their name. And there's probably a doctor by the last name of Lewy who discovered yeah, these it's things. It's a strange name for a dementia. And, uh, yeah, yeah, and but I think... Brains with Parkinson's can also have Lewy bodies, which is maybe where you've heard some oh, of that crossover. That could be. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> well, do you see much of the Lewy body dementia in your practice? That's a is less common. That's a more rare type of okay. dementia. So Alzheimer's is the most common type. Probably the next is what we call vascular dementia or dementia related to injury to the brain from small strokes over the years. Oh. And then probably Parkinson's and Lewy body is one of the less common types. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, interesting conversation on Parkinson's. Uh, when we were talking, we had another person call in with a totally different subject. <laughs> so we're, something as simple as cold sores. Are cold sores different than cancer sores? Cancer. Canker. Canker, canker not cancer. I'm trying to read this. Canker sores. I don't know. Are they the same? No. Um, generally speaking, I, I think we think of canker sores as more of just an inflammatory thing. People often get these associated with some other viral illness. Cold sores um, are generally referring to a herpes infection of the mouth or lip. Um, and so that's a, a, and also a viral infection, but of a specific type. Um, and they're typically cause a pretty painful blister-like lesion on the lip. Um, and a lot of folks who get these get them recurrently. Um, they often will feel sort of a tingling before that blister pops forth. That's kind of classic of a herpes type of uh, infection. And if you are someone who gets cold sores over and over, and they're pretty clearly a, the herpes cold sore type, sometimes antiviral medications can help either to take just when you have an outbreak. Some folks who get them really frequently at once a month or more than that, even we can give medicine to suppress that infection to prevent it from coming on. So okay. if there, if cold sores are something that bother you a lot, it's worth talking to your physician about. 
rather than just put up with them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I have heard of Lysine, L-Lysine. It's an over-the-counter. Mm. Are you familiar with that I'm for not, helping it? No. I'm not. No. Um, generally speaking, you know, the, the cold sores, again, are caused by this active viral infection. Okay. Um, so, you know, there are some over-the-counter ointments and stuff like that that I think soothe them. Um, but certainly an antiviral can be helpful. Okay. Well, thank you. A totally different subject, mm-hmm. but interesting. To, we appreciate <laughs> your calls. Thank you so much for that question. We're going to take our final break, and we'll be back right after these words. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Happy to have you listening today. Dr. Holm is out of town, unable to be with us, but in our stead, we have Dr. Kelly Evans, who's an internal medicine physician with the Avera Medical Group Brookings. Glad to have you here, Kelly. We've covered a lot of topics. We do appreciate your calls. Anything you want to know, we still have a few more minutes. Just give us a call at 692-1430, and we'd be glad to uh, respond to any questions you have. We did have somebody was listening to the, well, all anyone listening was hearing mm-hmm. our discussion on Parkinson's disease, and it popped are concerned that it may be on the rise. And this person has a question about multiple sclerosis, MS. Don't you think this is on the rise or is it that common in South Dakota? What do you know about that? Well, so you're, I wish we had a neurologist on the show that could actually tell you yes or no whether these are on the rise. I'm not yeah. qualified to do that. But MS or multiple sclerosis is more prevalent in our region than it is necessarily in other regions. And there's a few theories for why that is. It may be just the genetic makeup of our population. It may be some other environmental things. But MS is an autoimmune type of disease that causes um, what we call demyelination of some areas of the brain and uh, spinal cord. So... um, myelin is something that surrounds our nerves it sort of protects them it helps them function and and there's a reaction that can be caused in ms in which we lose our myelin and so it can result in a wide array of symptoms based on where we have this myelin loss and so um it can be weakness it can be um a lot of folks will have vision changes as some of their first um uh symptoms. How we diagnose it, we we use imaging like MRI. There are some other ways to help with diagnosis, which can include um, lumbar puncture and stuff like that. But um, as you mentioned over the break, Joan, over the last 10 to 20 years, medical treatment for multiple sclerosis has really boomed. Um, We have a lot of potential treatments. And so if you're someone who has been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and for whatever reason, sort of living with symptoms and that kind of thing, I would really recommend that that you see a neurologist who specializes in treatment of MS um, because treatment, uh, we really do have a lot of good options to prevent the permanent damage that can go along with MS. And that's the fear is the permanent damage Mm -hmm. because, you know, you'd be all right for a year or two and then Mm -hmm. maybe you lose the use of a leg or Mm -hmm. something. And that's, that's because of this myelin, not Yeah, yep, exactly. And so um, we the idea, as is the idea with a lot of diseases, is to prevent uh, future damage with some of our treatments. And so MS by nature, a lot, most people with MS have sort of a waxing and waning course. Well, things will naturally get worse and get better and get worse and get better over the years. Um, but like I said, good treatment's available now. 
Well, that's great. That's mm-hmm. very hopeful. For a, the, the best hope would be to cure it, but mm-hmm. if we can't cure it, there are decent treatments out there for it. Well, we're running low on time. We're down to about the last few minutes. Probably can't take any more calls, but we did have one more question about um, anxiety disorder. Do you think this is a form of depression or what is AD? Mm-hmm. So anxiety, we have pretty specific definitions for uh, diagnosis of a lot of our mental health disorders. And anxiety is sort of a separate category from depression. Um, There's generalized anxiety disorder, which is probably the most common type, but also under the anxiety disorders include panic attack um, disorder, as well as post-traumatic stress disorder. And the, the thing about anxiety disorder is that it actually is well treated by some agents that we use commonly in depression as well. So we have a lot of experience. Um, if you feel like anxiety is something that affects your day-to-day life, it's worth talking about. Part of the nature of anxiety and depression is that it, it leads a lot of people to not seek treatment, um, but I, I would encourage you to talk to your doctor about it. We do have some effective treatments, medically and non-medically, that namely being things like cognitive behavioral therapy and counseling. Um, so um, it's worth talking about and getting out in the open. Now, I have grandchildren, uh, obviously, who are in all different ages of school, mm-hmm. and we hear, even the kids talk about more and more kids that are having anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. Is it something that maybe kids always had and nobody cared and now they're paying attention yeah, to it? Yeah, I mean, it? I think that's the question, is, and that can be true with a lot of diseases that we see, quote, on the rise, is yeah. are we just diagnosing them more than we used to? And there there may be a part of that. Um, you know, I think there are plenty of people out there who might say there's societal factors that can go into this and maybe our society is generating a little more anxiety i don't think we'll ever know the answer for sure um i think i think a a lot of these things are multifactorial certainly part of it is biology of the brain but that's not all of it um if it was all of it our medicines would fix everything pretty easily and so there's more that goes into it that i think is just human and less tangible. Right. Well, mm-hmm. at least now they're recognizing problems with kids and, and mm-hmm. probably giving them more help than they would have had before. Right. Yeah. Well, Kelly, this has been really interesting. I know we're just about out of time, but we do appreciate you having come in, and I hope you'll be a guest again soon. And we hope all of you listening have enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program. As always, you can hear more from Dr. Holm online at prairiedoc.org, where you may also learn about the exciting activities of the Healing Words Foundation. Anytime you want to catch one of Dr. Holm's previous TV programs, you can get that on prairiedoc.org. So it's very, it's a, it's a nice website. If you go on the website, I think you'll find out a lot about Dr. Holm's activities and the activities of the Healing Words Foundation. I want to thank Dr. Kelly Evans for joining me today. It's been good to be here with you. Thanks, Joan. It was my pleasure. Okay, and thanks to all of you for listening to Prayer Doc Radio. I'll close with Dr. Holmes' weekly reminder. Stay healthy out there, people.